милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. In this episode, I talk to Volodymyr Ushenko on the Ukrainian left during and after the Maidan revolution. Volodymyr Ushenko is a sociologist studying social protests in Ukraine. He is the deputy director of the Center for Social and Labor Research and a member of the editorial board Commons, a journal for social criticism and the Left East Web magazine. He is also a lecturer at the Department of Sociology at the Kiev Polytechnic Institute. He is the author of the report, The Ukrainian Left During and After the Maidan Protests. Here's Volodymyr Ushenko. You just published an extensive study, The Ukrainian Left During and After the Maidan Protests. Talk about the origins of the study and how you came to write it. The, the problem which motivated was actually the huge confusion among the international left about what happened in Ukraine. And the events uh, in Ukraine posed very difficult questions for the left, and it was obviously not easy to see which side to support, because uh, each side were quite dubious. I mean, both Maidan side, and anti-Maidan, and then Russian, and then the new Ukrainian governments, and then on each side there were very suspicious people, at least, at least saying suspicious, uh, I mean, for the left. Uh, on each side, the nationalists, on each side, even the far-right uh, nationalists. And on the one side, the neoliberal agenda of the new government with full support of the Western elites. And on the other side, the conservative government in, in Russia. And uh, these are obviously very difficult questions for what, what should be the left politics in this situation. And uh, the Ukrainian left uh, in the international communication actually didn't help much to to make it clear. And uh, they exchanged this grave accusation to each other and uh, blaming each other in supporting fascists and uh, selling out everything that they could sell out from the left movement. So uh, the basic need, I felt that there, is, that there is a clear need for a balanced objective discussion. What actually the Ukrainian left were doing during that protests? Uh, what is Ukrainian left at all? And uh, what were their positions and what uh, could they do anything differently? And what what the left now, what, what, what the prospects of the left in Ukraine now uh, what could be supported and what have prospects, what doesn't have uh, any prospects, and what uh, the lessons for international left uh, that they can uh, take from what happened in Ukraine, because there are actually many lessons uh, that, have, that the left have to learn globally about the disaster which we had in our country. Yeah, yeah, I want to get into many of those issues. But first, I, I want to ask to have you evaluate on the importance or why do you think such a, a statement is important and a response to kind of clarify and communicate to international left uh, what happened in Ukraine, what is going on in Ukraine, and what's the left's position. I mean, because the left is a marginal political force in Ukrainian politics and amongst Ukrainian social movements. So why do you think it's important to tell about its role during and after the Maidan? The question about the left is a question about the alternative. So the, 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 the biggest question behind that was there any alternative to what happened in Ukraine since the end of the 
Could Maidan be a different movement? Could anti-Maidan be a different movement? Could it have? Could it uh, lead to anything better than the neoliberal nationalist government on the other side and on the other side? a nationalist revolt, Russian nationalist revolt with support of the Russian intervention on the other side. Uh, could the country didn't fell up into the civil war? Was there any third way about that? And that's uh, that the theme which uh, which is behind these questions I'm trying to I tried to answer in the paper. Now let's talk a bit about what the Ukrainian left is, because um, you know many people outside of Ukraine might not be very familiar with its history over the last twenty some years. Now the Ukrainian left is a quite fractured force, and and one um, division that you make is between the the old left and the new left. What distinguishes the old from the new in terms of its history and politics? I would even say that this is a generic distinction, uh, not not just in Ukrainian movement, but in many in many movements. Uh, you have the old left parties, which have uh, for many years institutionalized, which created a huge bureaucracy, which made a lot of uh, dubious steps and compromises, and this bureaucracy have their own interests at the moment, and that's, that's a question why, 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 for example, Syriza was such a failure. Why would, for example, Jeremy Corbyn be able to uh, reform the Labour Party? What will happen to Podemos? And uh, on that side, there's always uh, the kind of like counter-movement, a movement for rejuvenation of the left. The people who say that, that, that this bureaucratic degeneration is wrong, that we have to go back to the our true ideas, to socialism, to be more radical, to be revolutionaries, and all, and, and everything like this. And that happened in different his, different time periods in different countries. And the new left, uh, uh, for, in, at least in my opinion, in, in my interpretation, is not just a movement of the 60s, it's a kind of a structural counter-movement within the socialist, a generally socialist movement, a broad left movement, which tries to rejuvenate it. And so something like that uh, was uh, in Ukraine when uh, there were remnants of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, while the biggest one was the Communist Party of Ukraine, uh, which was first banned in 1991, and then they were allowed to exist in 1993, and uh, they, they, they were actually uh, the most popular parties uh, in the 90s in Ukrainian politics. Uh, they were able to elect uh, the Speaker of the Parliament, Alexander Moroz, the leader of uh, the Socialist Party of Ukraine. Uh, they were able to block uh, some of the dangerous neoliberal initiatives of the right-wing governments in the 90s, but uh, gradually they were degenerating. And uh, basically what happened to them were two processes. They, 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 they were becoming more and more just parliamentarian parties. Is much less uh, emphasis on the extra parliamentary, extra parliamentarian politics, on the protests, with very losing their connections to the working class movement, for example, to the unions, uh, to the extent they actually had it at all. And uh, another process also connected to that was about the um, ideological degeneration. So from from the from the beginning, the idea which was behind this communist successor parties was to try to bring back the Soviet Union. And, uh, and I even wouldn't say that was uh, kind of like completely bad thing because the many Soviet achievements that, that they, they had to defend and that could, if they were sustainable, they would make the 
lives of Ukrainian people better. But in essence, this is a reactive idea. This is this is a defensive idea. This is not an offensive thing. This is not some utopian project. This is not something that could mobilize people and that could mobilize people to move forward. This was not a plan for Ukrainian development. And that, 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 that's one of the biggest problem, the problems with Ukrainian life, which are also with the new life. And uh, by 2014, uh, there were only one uh, parliament, uh, left parliamentary party in Ukraine, the Communist Party. They made quite uh, good uh, results in the parliamentary elections 2012. We got uh, 13% uh, of the votes. Uh, but essentially, they were in the coalition with the pro-Yanukovych party region. So even if they said that they are not in the coalition, and many important votes actually voted together with the party regions, and in the public opinion, they were seen as a part of the governing coalition of the kind of like minor party behind the Yanukovych. And how they, they actually behaved during Maidan protests, they, they proved that they are they're not with the protesters, they're with the government. Even when the government went uh, quite uh, into, into quite oppressive uh, uh, position towards uh, the uh, protesters, the, 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 the most shameful thing was, of course, when the, all the communist MPs uh, voted for the set of repressive laws in January 16, uh, which was the major factor behind the escalation to my, of Maidan into the violent uh, uh, movement with uh, mass street violence in Kiev and, and also in other cities. So the, the Communist Party uh, obviously uh, has a blame for that. And uh, the New Left, th these were various groups which emerged uh, either independently from the Communist successor parties or these were the splinter groups from the Communist parties which were actually young people coming to the Communist parties that was the, the, the only or the most prominent leftist party and they were quickly disappointed and radicalized and they they were not able to reform anything and they were either expelled or just leaving the parties and creating their own movements. And this milieu was uh, still 2013. It, it actually had a kind of like a common identity. This, that we are the new left, the true left actually. Almost the only left in the country because all those uh, communists or socialists, they, they completely betrayed everything they could betray. And they are just... Uh, Conservative parties are the parties which support Russian nationalism and uh, not really caring about the working protests. So this was kind of uh, identity of this uh, quite broad milieu that existed. But during Maidan, it split and it split into pro-Maidan part and anti-Maidan part and uh, Pro-Maidan people, this were mainly the kind of anarchists, libertarians, left liberals. And uh, anti-Maidan uh, New Left were the people who mainly, but there were always exceptions and uh, cannot be kind of like 100% generalized, but mainly these were people who, came, who had this uh, Communist Party background. So the Maidan, if I understand you correctly, the, you, you have this one kind of almost a generational distinction between the old left and new left, but the, the Maidan protests actually splintered those as well in terms of some new left went against the protests and supported the protests and some of the old left went against and supported the protests. Is that a correct assessment? Yes, yes, it's correct. 
Um, so in your study, at the end of the introduction of your study, you make the, the following observation, which I found actually quite interesting. You write that the Maidan and the anti-Maidan movements channeled social grievances into a confrontation between competing Ukrainian and Russian nationalisms exploited by rival imperialist, imperialist blocs. Precisely at the moment when a progressive social agenda was, agenda was more necessary than ever before the, to unite the country, there was no powerful political force to articulate it clearly in opposition to both nationalist and imperialist camps and to unite progressive elements in both movements. Um, the implication here in this passage is that the Maidan provided a fertile political ground for the left to take advantage of, but it couldn't because of its structural and also political weakness in the country. Um, I have several questions about, about this argument that I want to have you address. The first of which is, did the protests really present a political opportunity for left forces to address social grievances? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and uh, I wouldn't prefer that this, my uh, conclusion should to be read in a so straightforward way. So the in, in, in the left polemics and in the left uh, discussions, there's quite often uh, uh, kind of like a very, quite primitive argument is used that if only we had a strong working class party at the crucial moment, it could went, it could go completely differently. But this, this is wrong. <laughs> Even we had a stronger political party and that could be more sympathetic to the just causes of uh, Maidan and anti-Maidan. Uh, it's a big question if if it could end differently. And the the problem was much deeper and much more structural. It's, it was not just about political weakness. It was also about the building of hegemony. Uh, the building of the connections with the working collectives that could be a, kind of like alternative force, uh, alternative to the far-right uh, violent activists, and for example, those who, if, for example, we, we are speaking about an alternative political strike against Yanukovych, some, some efficient but non-violent alternative of resisting the regime. Why it didn't happen? Why no political force, neither left nor any other, were able to mobilize the working collectives for political strike action? And th that's a question which is much deeper than just the political weakness of the left. Why, the, why, why, why not, not just the left, why anyone didn't have any, any serious social basis in the working collectives? Do you feel that that this was a this is a a constituency in Ukraine that has little rep, actual political representation? So there was no way to kind of include, say, the like working class grievances into a kind of political force in the protests. Yeah, you're right. That the working class uh, is not actually politically represented by neither party, neither significant party uh, before Madame and in the moment as well. And uh, the, there's also uh, what, what happened in Ukraine was it's uh, again that it's uh, that, that some processes which are not specific to Ukraine but which are much more interesting uh, globally. Uh, the recently for example there was a quite good collection of papers uh, 
uh, edited by social anthropologist Don Kalb with uh, Gabor Halmai, that uh, it was titled uh, Headlines of Nation, Subtexts of Class. And it, the, the book was devoted to the working class populism in both Western and Eastern Europe. So what we saw in Ukraine, both with Maidan and anti-Maidan, I believe it's quite similar to this uh, metaphor. We see the, the headlines of nation, resistance to Russian uh, attempts to force Ukraine into this geopolitical choice, and on the other side also resistance of uh, anti-Maidan Russian nationalists to the Western and fascist threat as they perceived it. And they were speaking more about uh, about national things. But behind that, there were social grievances. People were not ready to accept Yanukovych regime because it was becoming too unequal, too corrupt, and it was leading to nowhere. For what actually Yanukovych did with the European Association, he took away the hope from this part of the population who believed that if we joined Europe and if we signed the European Association Agreement, and they were naively believed in that, it was a illusion, but they believed in that. Ukraine uh, might have, may have a future. So Yanukovych literally took away this future from them. And uh, the question is why actually the this were because we, we we understand that European Union is not uh, like heaven on the earth. It has huge problems, and uh, Ukraine doesn't have a, actually any promise to join European Union. And uh, even the countries within EU, especially on the periphery, in southern periphery, in eastern periphery, they, they have huge problems, and it, it doesn't seem that European Union is actually able to help them with those. Problems. Let's just Greece is just the most extreme example of that. But there are also problems in Spain, in in, in Eastern European countries like Bulgaria, Baltic countries, Romania, and there is no uh, there is no ground to think that Ukraine would do anything better. But the question is why so many people in Ukraine believed actually that Ukraine would be better. Why that this idea became hegemonic? Why not? Why, why, for example, the nationalist ideas became hegemonic? Why people truly believe that, like taking uh, they taking away of Yanukovych and replacing uh, him with other uh, political leaders they had at the moment would would change anything? And would it change anything? And why, why, why uh, any left ideas, uh, for example, speaking about structural transformation of Ukrainian economy, of empowering working class, of um, getting rid of the international debt, why these ideas were, were, were not, not even hegemonic, they were, not, they were marginal? And why, 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 why not any any political force was able to articulate them? So this 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 this, this is a whole set of questions. And the the the, the problem we we had was much much deeper and much more structural. It was on the one side it was obviously mistakes that the left made, but on the other side it's uh, also uh, quite very limited opportunities they had at those moments to do anything better. But so the question then arises is, is really the, the place that nationalism and national identity and ideology play in uh, Ukrainian people's minds in the sense that I get the sense that the, the idea that if we could join Europe is very much kind of 
uh, intertwined with uh, a nationalist idea, in particularly a, a kind of anti-Russian uh, idea that if we can pull away from Russia, then life will be better. So, how does nationalism play within kind of the political scene in in um, Ukraine, and how th that limit the left's ability to even establish the uh, a bit of hegemony? That's uh, that's that, that's a big big structural question, actually. The, the... And uh, I'm not sure that anyone could have, have already provided a plausible answer to that. So why actually the uh, mass movements in in Ukraine, but not only just in Ukraine, but in other Eastern European countries, are taking this uh, much more nationalist uh, flavor than, than, than social? And that's also, again, that the question about alternatives. Many people, um, probably even more outside of Ukraine than inside of Ukraine, look at the Eastern Europe and they, <laughs> they feel, feel kind of like uh, uh, not very easy with that. <laughs> why, why, why doesn't behave like 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 Western Western Europe? Why 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 they don't have a kind of like Syriza in Ukraine or Podemos? Why they have this kind of like far right right sector kind of like crazy new liberals in the in the government? But at the same time, I mean, this is a this is a historical development at the moment where there is a, a resurgence of the right in the Western world. So in that sense, it's not exactly you know that much of an anomaly. Yeah, exactly. I, I completely agree with that. But you also have a, an alternative. So it's 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 more uh, it's more like polarization of the society when there is a radical left left uh, on the rise and also also a radical right the rise. And uh, that's also quite a dangerous situation. But in Ukraine, polarization is not on the left-right axis, but on the pro-Ukrainian, pro-European on the one side and pro-Russian on the other side. And this is. This is even more dangerous, unfortunately, because this is the, 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 this division split the country into two, and that's uh, obviously one of the basis of the of the war. And uh, and <laughs> that's also quite quite an interesting question that we we, we understand that the uh, nationalist hegemony was was counterproductive for the movement, because uh, for example, uh, assessing the results of Maidan. Even in terms of the Ukrainian nationalism, uh, if, for example, the, the movement was against uh, dependency on Russia, that Russia was dictating to Ukraine which geopolitical alliance to, to, to go, not to go to the European Union, but joining the customs union with Russia. And if Maidan was an, an, a protest against this attempt to dictate from 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 abroad, what we have now? And now we have the, the country which is even more dependent on the foreign powers, but now they are Western powers, both economically but also politically, to the extent that it had never been uh, dependent on Russia, at least since 1991, since the year when Ukraine became independent. And uh, if uh, the American politicians are coming to Ukraine and actually quite clearly saying who have to be in the government, who have, have not to be in the government, that seems to be much greater dependence, and not, not even mentioning the, the issue of the foreign debt, which is now the equal to Ukrainian GDP or even greater at the moment. And the uh, unsustainability of Ukrainian economy without foreign credits. So the, 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 w w why this nationalism was so counterproductive? 
And again, the, an, another idea of Maidan uh, that uh, if you see it as a kind of like anti-oligarchic revolution, the uh, revolution against the uh, the most powerful oligarchic clan because, uh, around Yanukovych, so-called family uh, clan. Uh, why in the end we have the even more oligarchic government when uh, like one of the richest persons in Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, is uh, the, the president now. And and the new government is pursuing even more austerity and even more harsh neoliberal policies than probably any other government in Europe. So, and again, that's the, the question which motivates all this uh, interest behind the left. Could it be differently? Was it, was it possible to have uh, anything, any other result of the protests and confrontations? And unfortunately, it seems that there was no real alternative. And uh, the, what happened was, to a large extent, structurally predetermining, not just economically, also politically. Uh, one, one structural thing behind uh, the success of nationalism, nationalisms, actually, not just Ukrainian nationalists, but Russian nationalists as well, uh, is the, probably the divisions within the working class uh, in, uh, in, in, in various post-Soviet countries, but also in Ukraine. Why, why working class was so divided? And not, not just uh, among the national lines, or language, cultural lines, but also between the uh, um, uh, between the manual workers working mainly in the Soviet uh, industries, working primarily for other former Soviet republics markets, and the intellectual workers. Why? Why? why, why yeah, Soviet workers and, and intellectuals, public intellectuals. Why? 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 Soviet intelligentsia is so. Elite, el, elitist, so adverse to the people in uh, to, to, to the working class uh, primarily. Why, why, why is this alliance between progressive intellectuals and the workers is not actually possible here? And what we see is rather splits, uh, which the movements like Madana and Madana only uh, making deeper. This brings up another issue um, before I ask you about the, the role, the what what happened with the war. But um, in in this kind of larger context, I mean, the splits that you're 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 talking about, the, the or the processes you're speaking about, the nationalism on the one hand, the the breakdown of any kind of relationships between intellectual elites and say working class people. Um, these, of course, are are prevalent throughout many parts of the Western world and also in Eastern Europe uh, and the United States. Uh, there is this major divide. Um, so how do you place, uh, given the, the number of social explosions that have happened over the last 10 years in Eastern Europe, in, in, in Europe, in the United States, uh, also in the Middle East, how do you, where do you place the Maidan protests on this kind of trajectory of the, the long period of, of social destabilization that we've seen? Yeah, the, 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 it's very tempting to put Maidan into the, the same line with the Arab Spring, for example, or the Occupy Wall Street and to see some um, similarities. Oh, they, for example, they occupied Chukoti uh, Park in New York, and also they occupied Maidan Square in Kiev. Yeah, it's similar, but this, this is a similarity of tactics. And one of the most interesting uh, things about that, about Maidan that actually 
there was no serious attempt to bring any connections between Ukrainian protests and progressive movements in the West. No, 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 no significant group attempted to, to build some alliance, to build some solidarity networks. And uh, it leads me to think that Maidan and anti-Maidan, they were uh, not like Arab Spring, not like Occupy Wall Street, obviously, not like uh, anti-austerity protests in Greece or in Spain. But these were more closer to right-wing populist movements. Yes, there were, there, there were social grievances behind it. And people were protesting not just because they were crazy, not because they were fanatics, but because they, 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 some people were protesting against corruption and it was a very reasonable uh, thing to protest and against repressions of the Yanukovych government. It was also a very, uh, very understandable and reasonable cause for people to rebel. Uh, and in anti-Maidan movement, the people were defending their, uh, their jobs. Uh, they were process- protesting against the threat of the uh, European Association that could deprive them of their, of their jobs. They were protesting against the threat of the far right. And uh, it was exaggerated, but the far right were also there. And uh, it, 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 it some, under some other circumstances, they may play badly. So, uh, but why these just causes for protests were articulated in the right-wing way? And essentially they were articulated in the right-wing way and the rightists had the political hegemony in both movements. What about the war? Um, how, how did the Ukrainian leftists respond to the separatism in the Donbass and, and the resulting war and, of course, the Russian intervention into that war? Uh, they... Uh... Mainly, they followed the split or between Maidan, pro-Maidan and anti-Maidan left, and uh, not, not with many exceptions about that. But again, that's uh, that's also a question about the words and deeds. So, at least declaratively, almost everyone on the left was against the war. But the questions, <laughs> the, the questions started how they actually explained the war. Who, whom they blamed for the start of the war, how they understood the causes of the war, and how they understood the solutions. So, for example, there, there, there was a, like the Communist Party was uh, hysterically criticizing the new Ukrainian government, but uh, they literally said anything critical against Russia, even even though the, the Russian uh, annexation of Crimea and support for the separatists was something that obviously fueling the war for years uh, already. And uh, on the other side, uh, that the part of the new left uh, that uh, in the last days of Maidan like, almost literally lost of, uh, of their mind, uh, they were supporting the anti-terrorist operation of the Ukrainian government. They uh, were ma- mainly they were following the line of the Ukrainian national liberals who blamed primarily Russia and uh, were very adverse to discussion of any internal causes of the war. So um, m- m- many people in this uh, kind of like pro-Maidan and uh, left would still be very aggressive into to any mentioning that the war might might be might have a civil war component. That it is not just. Russian intervention, but it's also a war between Ukrainians, and uh, where mainly Ukrainians are the 
major parties of the conflict and those who uh, who take the largest atrocities. And um, yeah, the 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 the, the the biggest problem was that the, precisely when the, it was necessary to say that the, this war is unjust, it's unjust on, from both sides, and uh, it leads to the destruction of the country. It, that, that this is something that we, we have to stop it, not just for, for the left, for Ukraine. For Ukraine as uh, the country we uh, used to live in. The, the, the left f- failed to do it. They became the left wing, we, the left wings of right movements. And many, many on the left continued to follow their ways, even when they became radicalized in the extremely nationalist way. And, uh, there were attempts to, 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 to formulate the anti-war positions and uh, many statements, uh, from the left. But as I said, it's a, it was also a problem of the words and deeds. No, not just uh, what the left could you know, write on the internet and collect uh, hundreds of signatures, but also to how to mobilize against the war. And no left organization was able to to propose any practical alternative. Despite that, that they called for the networks of solidarity, uh, anti mass anti war movement, uh, supporting like labor activists in the war zone and so on and so forth, helping the refugees from Donbass, they did almost nothing. Despite the fact that there were indeed the protests, uh, I mean the protests, not not really anti-war protests, that was all against it, not not just the subjective failure of the left, but also some uh, very limited objective opportunities. Uh, there were anti-war protests in Ukraine, uh, but mainly they were motivated uh, by kind of like an India, um, uh motive. So it would not not in my backyard, not taking our our sons and brothers and fathers to to, to the war. The protest against the draft, and uh, quite rarely these protests were uh, were articulating any clearly anti-war position. So not just against mobilization, not just against the draft, but uh, against the war as such. Nevertheless, there were like dozens of these protest events, not really large, but they were. And uh, here the subjective failure of the left, that no leftist group was able to systematically work with those anti-draft protesters and trying to build connections with them, to radicalize them, to create any kind of like anti-draft all-Ukrainian network. So the, the, we didn't do this, unfortunately. Your main uh, goal in this report is, is, is in addition to kind of giving a balanced look at the, the events that have occurred in the last two years and the place of the Ukrainian left in it, but it, the, the ultimate goal is to actually see what lessons should Ukrainian leftists in particular, but also the international left in general should draw from, from the last two years. What lessons would you say that are important for, for leftists in Ukraine and outside Ukraine to, to consider? Yeah, the, <laughs> a number of lessons. Uh, one lesson is that we have to, to understand how conservative became uh, Soviet and post-Soviet communism. And uh, one of the 
problems was that the, the biggest left party in Ukraine played uh, probably one of the most reactionary roles in those protests, I mean the Communist Party. And uh, the roots of that conservatism, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they, 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 they were starting even, even, in, even in the early 90s, when the left project was mainly formulated as a reactive project, as a, an attempt to defend what was objectively collapsing, I mean, the Soviet Union and the so, so, so Soviet remnants in the post-Soviet countries. It was not a proactive project. It was not a project that could uh, move Ukraine forward. And uh, it organically led to politically conservative position when uh, at the crucial moment communists were defending the government and uh, to culturally conservative position when the Communist Party becoming a clerical party, nationally conservative party, uh, kind of like a gender conservative party, and so on. Uh, but also, also we have to understand that a left party is necessary, and that that's a lesson from the pro-Maidan left, which at the crucial moment appeared so disorganized, so so weak organizationally that they couldn't make uh, any significant and visible impact on what was uh, happening in, in Maidan Square. And a strong organization for the left is one of uh, the very crucial things that we have to uh, defend and to, to build. It's, it goes obviously against this uh, network, uh, horizontal mania among many Western left movements where one of the mistakes which Occupy Wall Street, for example, was making, trying to preserve this network character of the movement and very adverse to any attempts for strong organization. So th th this is an argument why anarchism is essentially maybe a failure because it disarms the left in the, in, in, in the moments when the left actually must have strong uh, organizations able to mobilize people at the crucial moments in time and space. Another lesson is about the working class, and that's what I refer to speaking about an opportunity for political strike. If the left is mainly based in the elite universities, as again, as actually happened with Kiev left, uh, they, they won't have any, uh, any, any any dangerous social base behind them, dangerous for the for our adversaries. So, if if you live still in the industrial societies, which uh, where the working class have these uh, levers, the main levers in the economy, these are the people who can stop things working, who who are. Have the, the the greatest actually economic power. We must work with them. We we, we just we, we will be uh, uh, completely uh, uninteresting and uh, safe for the for the ruling class if we are not organically connected with the working class collectives. Also, also, even if the major mobilizations are happening not around working class issues. These are people who could uh, move uh, this mobilization, mobilization in some progressive and alternative way. 
And there's also a lesson about the violence that, uh, despite all those attempts to be, uh, for, uh, I mean, attempts from the left to be kind of like nice people, acceptable people, uh, respectable people, at the crucial moments is actually the violence which uh, decides who wins and who loses. It was precisely because the right wing were ready for violence and particularly the right sector, that they became so prominent in the later stages of Maidan protests. And uh, what uh, what my study is actually showing, that the left was much less uh, ready and uh, actually participating in violent actions, even before Maidan. Neither old left, neither those bureaucratic and uh, aging structures, nor the new left from young people and seemingly radical people, Neither of these wings were, uh, were really capable for political violence at the moments where they were objectively necessary. And there were no other uh, choice for, for the movements to move forward. And uh, probably the last question, uh, the last lesson, and, and uh, probably even the most abstract and also the most global, is the degradation of the class analysis uh, and class politics in the left. And this is the scene which actually allowed for not only Ukrainian left, but also the international left, which were involved in those Ukrainian discussions, uh, to become the, just the followers of the rightists, become the left wing of right-wing movements. If you don't have the uh, our, our class analysis, our independent position in this kind of conflict, we are easily becoming the voluntary supporters for our opponents. And th that's why uh, the kind of like pro-Maidan left was so easily driven into the left wing of national liberal movement and uh, first supporting quite apologetically Maidan, but then supporting the new government and supporting the anti-terrorist operation. And uh, some of those people now uh, don't really feel the left anymore. They feel much more comfortable and easier with the liberals and uh, and the left identity for them is something really dangerous because it connects them to some, some people like Dilinke and, uh, and they might say something bad about like Ukrainian government and maybe they're really funded by Russian government and uh, maybe they're really just useful idiots. So quite many people in the former Pomidan left now are not really different from, from, from liberals. But on the other side, the, the communists and uh, anti-Maidan left, uh, they, unfortunately, they became just left wings of Russian nationalist movement. Not really the communist party leadership, because they were taking a uh, very undecisive position. But uh, many people in Donbass, in the local organizations, uh, who joined the separatist forces, who joined the structures of the separatist republics. And at the same time, they, they had more opportunities there, but they were not able to uh, formulate a critical agenda. And uh, again, they are playing more like um, attractors to the uh, to the Western left to show that this this movement in Donbass is uh, fighting for some uh, anti-fascist cause and uh, and not really not really pro-Russian and so on. So uh, the the question is 
whether the left globally will be able to uh, resurrect, to renovate the class analysis relevant for the new societies and the, the new structural changes in uh, Western European, Eastern European societies to, for example, to um, to introduce the migrants and precarious workers into our theory and into our politics, and uh, wh whether this uh, uh, whether the left will have an independent future, as an independent political force that will not be uh, so easily splitted and driven by the nationalist mobilizations. So th 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 this is the most important thing. That was Volodymyr Ushenko, author of The Ukrainian Left During and After the Maidan Protests. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, where if you have a moment, you can write a review. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Sean's Russia Blog. Until next time, bye.